Welcome to What Is It About the Weather podcast, where we explore the many ways weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek. This week, vanillin. You heard that right. More coming on that in a bit. Hope you're having good weather. Or weather that you like, whether it makes you think. I've had kind of a wet and cloudy week. Even yesterday when I went out for a ride, I got a little rain. A little cold. It was good. It's good overall. Beautiful rainbow. Maybe I'll use that as the cover art this week. I know. Sometimes the cover art seems like it fits the episode. Sometimes it seems like it has nothing to do with it and it's just a cool pick. That's right. That's because that's exactly how it goes down. I don't have necessarily a methodology. I used to try to do more of that. Right. Look for just the right picture that maybe somehow went with the story. Not always easy to do. So at least try to make it a cool looking picture. And I think this week's works pretty well. It's funny. I came across... In that, I mentioned that email feed I get, the morning brew, a few episodes back. And then when we were talking about the robot ex- episode, right, I was talking about autonomous vehicles and, and how they would potentially use weather. And there was a whole thing explaining where we are with autonomous vehicles, a big, long kind of expose kind of article. And I was curious if they'd mentioned weather. And they did. Once, one word in the summary, in the beginning. No more. <laughs> so I don't, still don't think there's a lot of information about how the data feeds between these different AIs, machine learning systems, are yet including a lot of weather data. Or, as I speculate, maybe a lot of it's just not being reported on yet or it's in early phases. In any case, thought it was kind of funny that it wasn't there. All right, folks, I want to take a moment. I've been kind of playing around with the Patreon page, cleaning it up a little bit, looking at the YouTube page, thinking about the logo design, all, you know, all these things. I mean, we've been doing this for five years. Yeah, I know there was a little hiatus in there, but podcast has been around for five years, over 150 episodes now. Time to kind of freshen things up, I guess. But in going to the Patreon page, I was reminded there's, there's been a group of people that either for a very long time or in a very short spurt or more recently, or even in the beginning, a group of people that I would say have contributed meaningfully to the podcast in terms of their donations. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank SJ and Craig and Aaron and Kirk and the Ritual Misery Podcast and Patron of Patrons, like that name. All of you have had a meaningful contribution financially to the podcast. And no, it's not the only way to contribute, as I mentioned before. But I wanted to thank them because they have. They're part of the reason I'm able to keep doing this, be able to afford equipment, and I am looking at some new things equipment-wise, maybe some stuff to be able to get back outside, going back to doing some more video stuff. And to do all those things, that costs money. And while I, I put some of my own money into this to keep it going, having these contributions makes it more feasible to do this kind of stuff because I don't have endless pockets. And quite frankly, in contributing my time and my effort, I can only contribute so much. And so it's nice to have that support that covers the hosting and equipment and all those sort of things to make the project just feel good all the way around. So thank you to you all. For those that don't support the podcast, if you've ever thought about it, patreon.com slash weather. You can contribute for a long time. You can contribute just a little or a lot, or you can do a one-time thing. You know, just contribute for the month. It all works. And it's all appreciated. But thanks again to those people that have gone out of their way to make sure the podcast keeps going. All right. 
let's talk about what we're here to talk about and why we're here to talk about it. Vanillin. <laughs> Are you saying that right? Yes, I'm saying that right. Well, maybe I'm not, but I'm pretty sure I am. Time to get back to history and weather. You guys know I love to do these episodes, but you also know that I've been facing a challenge where we have only so much content that is accessible to me as an English speaker. Now, you may think, oh, you know, you've got access to everything. It's, it's the most common sort of business language around the globe. All these things are true. A lot of content on the Internet. It's true. But let's also recognize that there are only so many things that are going to fit that criteria for me that where weather has really impacted history. There are situations where it may impact the history of one of us, but like of mankind or some sort of notable, meaningful event that maybe tilted things in a different direction. I also don't like doing necessarily things that were long-lasting, that we are more of what we think about when we think about climate. Because I really like to point to an event, both on the history side and on the weather side. So with that in mind, I've been looking again and again, and I've, I've had you know some success in stretching things out. I've been able to cover most continents now and found some stories that took a little more digging, or maybe I called on somebody with a language skill that I don't necessarily have to help me fill in the gaps. But I've had a lot of luck everywhere except a couple places now. One of them is Oceania, which would include Australia. I don't know why I haven't found a good event down there. Maybe there is one, maybe there isn't, maybe the... Noteworthy ones that just haven't caught my eye. But the other one is Africa. Huge continent. I'm even going to put a link in the show notes. One of those things that people forget when we see, when we look at map projections about Africa, right? Africa looks pretty sizable, but we always see these things that kind of make North America and Asia particularly look bigger than they really are because of the way you flatten the globe. And there's a link in the show notes where you can go and this website kind of goes to from that projection of what their real size is if you were to shrink it to everything else. Because Africa stays about the same size because of its proximity to the equator. Big place. And how many countries, you know, it takes to fill up Africa. So I've always wanted to do one related to Africa. And I think we've got a couple challenges there. One is that, yes, parts of Africa, English language is been in the culture but not necessarily a long time, even when it has been there. But there's just so many countries and so many cultures, and there's been you know, turmoil and all these things that kind of churn it over to where maybe there are events, and there are biblical events as an example, but there's not necessarily a good, well-documented event in, in more of what I would say is modern history, because that's what I'm going to kind of trust of something being you know, well laid out to a specific weather event, like I said, not so much like a famine or something that lasted multiple years. Because there's a lot of talk of that. When you go and look in, if you do a search on weather in Africa and extremes, famine is probably the, the biggest thing that you come across. Not surprising, given where Africa kind of sits on the equator. And these you, know, you get this kind of tropical zone near the equator. But on either side of it, you get these more desert dry zones. So it deals with that a lot because it borders on areas that are already going to be dry to begin with. Yet certain areas dry out, and it makes it just devastating. Okay, plenty of examples of that. Plenty of examples, but those ones a lot of times are hard to turn in from 
what does that mean in terms of history? Because it talks about how we may have shifted from being in a part of Africa, even human history is part of Africa, but it's, it's just kind of make it difficult to equate to. So I kept looking for things, kept looking for things, right? And one of the things that I often come across with extreme weather events, you know, you, what, are, what are the kind of recurring things? You get these shorter-lived events. A lot of them are things like maybe a, a severe thunderstorm type of event. Other things, tropical cyclones consistently play a role, or it doesn't even have to be tropical. Some sort of powerful, it can be a wintertime kind of cyclone, you know, more in the mid-latitudes. These big, powerful events, quite often that are over ocean at some point, and then either do something over the water or you know come ashore and do something. Well, again, with Africa, you don't get a lot of those. In the Atlantic, they're just unheard of, just because of the way weather moves and that sort of thing. But on the east coast of Africa, they exist. But again, very few of these cyclones generally make it all the way over to Africa. You hear about them in the Indian Ocean, but more often impacting India or Bangladesh or countries like that. But they do they do hit Africa, and they do impact Africa. Okay, So just be aware that that's a real thing and kind of where my brain was. And I'm going to warn you right now, I've got some, some traffic going on behind me. So even, even though I've been trying to play with days of the week to avoid some noise, uh, tunnels, bad weather outside... Not a good combination for free traffic flow, so just be aware. Apologize for that. Any case, let's stick with what we we're looking at. So I started looking at, you know, was there examples of this, right? What what could I find out? Because there was a, I remembered a tropical cyclone from just a couple of years ago, and that's what it was, 2019. Tropical storm or a tropical cyclone, you die. Very powerful. Probably, or it's considered maybe the worst tropical cyclone in African history. One of the worst in all the Southern Hemisphere. And it impacted a region that is interesting to me. And it's the Mozambique Channel, which is the area between Madagascar and the mainland. Now, just to put that in context, what does that channel look like? Right, What's going on there? Well, it ranges from about 250 miles wide to about 500 miles wide. And putting... Let me give you some other areas. Hudson Bay in near Canada, the North Sea you know, for Europe, um, maybe the Black Sea for you know, Mediterranean Asian countries. And, and again, it's not precise, like the Sea of Japan, another thing in Asia. You, if you think about those areas, some of them are a little bigger, some of them are a little smaller. But just to put it in context, it's, it's not a very wide channel. So this idea that tropical cyclones, and that's what happened in this case, this tropical cyclone, it essentially was, it, for as strong as it was, it was just in that little area, right? That's the predominant track of this storm and where it was at its strongest was in this little space. And that's just wild to me, right? Because I don't think about that happening often. Closest thing I get with, with the Atlantic storms I deal with is the Gulf of Mexico, which is about twice that size. And yes, you can get very big storms develop in that. But when you look at how this storm kind of came about, it was just, it was unusual. It was different, Right. But that storm in and of itself didn't didn't really strike anything. Yes, there were deaths, unfortunately. Yes, there were areas that were, you know, overwhelmed by the rains that came along with that. Happens with almost every tropical cyclone. Is it that distinctive? No, not necessarily in terms of, of history and what's going on. But I kept kind of looking at it 
And I kept going, okay, maybe there's something here in this. But then I started wondering, okay, what is it history-wise that I'm looking at that might be relevant? You know, what, what is it that might be impacted Africa-wise that would, maybe I could change the search or tweak it around. And I always think of Africa and natural resources because, yes, there's situations of war and that sort of thing, but you don't think about, for instance, Madagascar being in war with the coast of Africa, like you might think of between the history of uh, Japan and China, as an example, or England, you know, in France, or even, you know, World War II, because that was one of the early episodes. So I, I got back to this natural resources because, you know, Africa is abundant with them. And that includes things in the ground and includes things also related to different crops. Because of where it sits, Africa is very well situated to grow certain types of crops, right? That maybe the climates in other parts of the world are not as well situated for. So I started digging in that because I'd heard some stories here and there about different things. And there were two that came to mind. One was chocolate and the other was vanilla, right? And what I've learned, interestingly enough, is those two things and their history really come out of Mesoamerica. Generally in the area of Mexico is where they were cultivated. And in their conquest, the Spanish found those things and took them back to Europe. And over time, through you know various things that went on over centuries, those crops ended up making their way to Africa and becoming dominant crops in those regions today. I mean, 70% of the world's chocolate, more or less, is produced in a few countries in Africa. Again, ideal climate for growing those things. South of the equator versus Mexico being north, but just a perfect setup for it, right? Couldn't find any connection to chocolate. Partly because tropical cyclones or other big weather events don't really hit that zone the same way that they might on the other side of the coast. So then I looked at vanilla. Vanilla is huge, huge in Madagascar, right? And it was a discovery, not in Madagascar, but a, a Reunion Island. I, I think it's still a French territory. Any case, in that vicinity, that someone, and if I remember correctly, a young slave, figured out that it was actually how vanilla pollinated effectively was all hand pollination. So the technique to hand pollinize the vanilla, it's like an orchid, right? If you touch the petals right, because what had happened was there's a specific bee that was you know, believed to be the bee that pollinated it, and Europeans didn't get all that right and couldn't figure out an easy way to reproduce it simply with the bees. But if you just took it and took a little stick and mildly touched the male and female parts together on just the right day every year, and apparently right away you can tell you did it right because the, the bean starts forming, the vanilla bean starts forming. But you get one day to do it a year, so you got to kind of go out, check the crops, and see if the flower is just right, and you pollinate, and voila, you get this bean. It's a lot of work, though, right? But it grows well in certain regions, Madagascar being one of them, and so the crop started developing there. 
80%, roughly 80% of the world's vanilla came from there. But in the meantime, right, had to figure out those other things. And so I was, you know, like I said, I was doing these things on tropical cyclones and everything else. And I came across, I kept coming across this story about vanilla prices fluctuating. All of them around 2017. And I hadn't read too much in the articles, but voila, if we didn't have a tropical cyclone, again, pretty powerful in 2017, that hit the northern part of Madagascar as a fairly strong tropical cyclone, got as strong as 150 mile an hour winds. Thankfully, there were very few deaths, given how strong it was. But it hit right in that vanilla zone. And it did something wild to vanilla prices. It essentially made vanilla as expensive as silver. Okay? Pretty wild when you think about it. And it made vanilla, which, you know, at times can be relatively inexpensive, a very volatile thing. But it highlighted a sensitivity to weather, if you will. Because before, for years before that, there had been kind of a, a glut in prices. And so some farmers had gotten out of the vanilla business. One, because you got this day, you got to go around, check them all. And you got to do this delicate little hand pollination process. It's an interesting kind of vine. If you don't know vanilla, it kind of cl- climbs up a tree and the flowers are produced from there. This is a lot of work. A very human intensive thing, even today. But we had this thing, the spice that's in lots of foods, a lot more than you realize, I think, in many cases. And that spice, being as expensive as what's considered a precious metal, is just kind of mind-boggling to many people. And there's only one other spice that's known to hold a higher price consistently over time, and that's saffron. Again, equally as of a challenging sort of growth process, if you will, but probably not even as complex as vanilla. So this single event seemed to drastically change the price. So I thought, okay, maybe this will tell me something about how weather influences these things, because clearly where it grows, weather influences that. Severe weather events can influence, at a minimum, the prices. But for years, I've been seeing this artificial vanilla, right? You, you've probably seen it too, right? Is it natural? Is it imitation? And of course, all the chefs will tell you you use natural vanilla and everything. But the more I read about it, the more I realized that anything where you kind of start heating things up or cooking things, and even why we use them in ice cream, et cetera, good old plain vanilla ice cream, a lot of things use artificial vanilla. And the most common thing is this vanillin. Vanillin is actually what contains that flavor, but it's a chemical. Vanillin is actually just the chemical. And you can get it in so many other places. This is what I found mind-blowing. And and there'll be a couple of links in the show notes if you want to read about this. You can get it from all sorts of things, including from coal tar, which for years, much of it came from that, except people start learning that their vanilla came from coal tar and you're going, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to eat it anymore. But there's a lot of other sources too that are a little little more benign in the grand scheme of things. 
But for years, they have been evolving this process partly because of weather, but partly because of just how difficult it is to pollinate, right? And how few places that you could effectively grow it. And even now, probably the biggest thing that has happened, though, and it was probably brought about by the surge in prices, is creating genetically artificial, if you will, vanillin or vanilla flavor. So not, not pulling the chemical from other sources, but creating it no different than creating you know, a big popular thing right now is imitation meats, right? That we're getting into. And this is a similar sort of thing. It's not exactly the same, but it's a geoengineered, if you will, substitute. And in theory, what that does is it gives you a way to create the flavor without it being dependent on any of these other things, these other sources that you have to grow and create and still, you know, have to be harvested. And so there might be other complications with versus a lab grown substitute. And for the most part, what the evidence shows is we humans can't tell the difference. Now, I would have no doubt that a chef understands it, right? And a chef understands the nuances of the flavor because vanillas that are grown from different regions, whether it's Tahiti, Tahiti, (laughs) I was going to say Tahitian vanilla, but grown in Tahiti or other areas kind of, and again, you look at a certain latitude zone, still grown in Mexico, certainly not as much as it once was. But if you look at all these areas, they all have kind of a, a nuanced flavor. Maybe something has a little more of a smoky feel. Maybe something has a little more of a citrusy feel in terms of that final flavoring. But whether you need that in your vanilla ice cream is highly debatable, right? I guess it depends on what you're doing with it. But for the most part, we tend to apparently like vanilla. And at one point, when this whole vanilla chocolate thing was discovered, apparently vanilla was liked more than chocolate flavor. Who would have, who would have thunk it by today's standards? Any case, the long and the short of it is artificial vanilla or the flavor of vanilla was discovered over a hundred years ago and ways to get it were discovered over a hundred years ago. 1970s is when it became a little more widespread, but it's also why you still have this whole packaging thing about what's natural versus artificial. And it's the only flavor, it's the only flavor that there are laws about with the Food and Drug Administration here in the U.S. So they actually do dictate what can be considered a vanilla flavor and whether it is natural or artificial. It's kind of wild when you think about it. But I get back to the same thing. Is does, is weather got something to do with what was going on? Did weather drive up the prices of vanilla? Yes. Might it have driven a higher price? And a way for us to want to, you know, create it in a lab, if you will, or stabilize the price, if you will. Yes, it did. Weather did those things. Does weather dictate where it grows? Yes. Weather slash climates do all those things. But the demand for it, that's not necessarily why weather-related thing. It was just like, well, can't grow it everywhere. But that's the same with everything. You can look at things like coffee that 
it's a big crop, but many different places around the world, and it drives up the prices, and weather may devastate an individual thing. But with all things, you know, there's going to be sort of that weather influence when you get into food, and we've talked about that enough. But I don't think weather itself is the driver. I think it was more of us not understanding how the plant was pollinated, and we could probably even stretch where it's grown. There's a lot of things that we could do if we really wanted to. It's just a complicated plant to do it naturally. So I think weather's the blame. So I think in this case, is weather the reason we have vanilla? No, it's not. Does weather and vanilla have a rich history? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting history. But my quest will therefore continue to find the right event of where weather really changed history for the continent of Africa. Sorry, guys, didn't get it this first time around. But hopefully you learn an interesting thing or two about something that weather is related to. I love vanilla. It's my favorite flavor growing up. Actually, you know, when I was a kid, there were only so many ice cream flavors, at least in the grocery store. And the one I always liked was what I used to call Napoleon ice cream. It had nothing to do with Napoleon and why I call it that, I don't. It was Neapolitan. It was the one that had strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate. But vanilla was always my favorite in all all three of those. And still to this day, it's a flavor I enjoy. Maybe why it caught my attention to begin with. Well, there you have it. We shall continue the quest for weather and history in Africa. And like I said, Australia is still there as well. If you have any stories that you think worth investigating, let me know. Be glad to do it. In any case, you should know how to get hold of me by now. But as a reminder, what is about the weather at gmail.com? Get me on that way on Twitter as well. And like I said, keep an eye out. I, I do think I'm going to be doing some more things maybe with YouTube and the Patreon page in the near future. Don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Still thinking through that. That's why I haven't jumped in to do it yet. But thank you all for your continued support listening to the podcast, join what's created here. But I always welcome your feedback. So feel free to send it along, whether it's show ideas, whether it's questions, any of that stuff's always welcome. Before I let you go, I will we'll bring up one thing. I get these emails because I'm a Weather Ready Nation ambassador, right? One of them was about this revamping process that they're going through here, and it's been a long time coming in the U.S., it's a long time frame that they're talking about rolling some of this stuff out. But if you get an email called has simp, what does that title mean to you? Has simp. I'm going to just leave it at that. You can send me your feedback on that. It was one of those things where like, you know, if you're trying to make things easier, I'm not sure sending out something that says has simp uh, gets the job done. I'm sure you can kind of figure it out, but it was made me laugh more than it made me think, Oh, they're making the right progress. All right. You guys go enjoy the weather and enjoy it. Now that we're getting into summer for most of the populated world, not all of it, may you be able to enjoy whether it's chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, or any of those flavors that you enjoy during the summer season when you're enjoying a frozen treat. Because it could be peach, it could be any fruit. We all know where the weather plays a role with that too. Just remember, there's much more to weather than the weather itself.